Hi, everyone. Radhika Jones here, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. With award season in full swing, there's no better time to become a Vanity Fair subscriber. Let our editors take you behind the scenes of this year's nominated films, from prestige indies to major blockbusters, plus exclusive coverage of Hollywood's biggest events. Visit VanityFair.com today and save 10% on a yearly subscription for a limited time with promo code OSCARS. That's VanityFair.com, promo code OSCARS, for 10% off a year of insights and access you won't find anywhere else. Subscribe today while this offer lasts through March 31st, 2024. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me! I'm the king of the world! There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. And with Rebecca Ford. Hi. Uh, we have such a wide range of news to talk about, uh, in addition to some Emmy shows that we did not get to last week that we heard from you guys about. Um, duly noted, we love to continue hearing from you. Email littlegoldman at vf.com. Um, so we'll talk about some of the shows that we didn't get to because there really is just so much television. Um, but there's news about the Oscars. There's news about Cannes. There's Barbie posters. Um, hopefully by the time you're hearing this, the enthusiasm for the Barbie posters is as intense as it is on Tuesday morning when we're recording this. Um well, let's start with the changes at the Academy. Uh, there are some rumors about what kind of changes they might implement, and then there are some actual announcements. And Rebecca, you kind of captured the lay of the land for us this week. Um, what's real, what's rumored, and, and what matters? Well, they really did uh, establish a new branch, which um, was their first sort of active business post-Oscars. Basically, in this time of year, we expect to hear from the Academy about some changes for the coming year. Um, so they just created the production and technology branch, which is basically kind of their way of collecting all the hodgepodge members at large under one <laughs> group, finally. <laughs> so it's everyone from like script supervisors and colorists to uh, more jobs that are really uh, steeped in sort of the technology and creative services. And they're all in one group now, um, which is the first time they've created a branch in years, um, I think since 2013. So that's, that's a notable move. Um, it means there'll be a new governor from that branch, which they'll have to elect. And it also, you know, there's been a lot of um, discussion for years about uh, a stunt um, category at the Oscars. Mm -hmm. And this did make me wonder if if that might be something they're seriously considering because this group also would include uh, stunt coordinators. And so 
I didn't. I, that's just something I was wondering about. I have no uh, reporting on that, but I am curious, you know, if that is something they would seriously consider. Although, uh, wasn't the casting directors branch the last one that they introduced? And there is, we're still no closer to a casting Oscar. We even had a casting director president, and there's still no casting director <laughs> Oscar. So I think those are our huge uphill battles. You're totally right. But then. Yeah. I mean, maybe we should get a little bit into the rumors that are happening, because yeah. I do think we're going to see more changes um, coming after they have a meeting uh, in late April. Well, maybe we should talk. So before we get to the newest rumor, um, you reminded me in your write-up that the social media changes is the thing that they have said that they will tackle and they haven't announced yet in the wake of the two Leslie uh, to-do. Um, and we're, we still don't really know exactly how far they're going to go with that. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't – I would – I would wonder if anyone could come up with a good solution to that problem because <laughs> the rules can either be too vague or too too specific and, you know, loopholes are going to exist no matter what. So I'm really curious to see what they do. I think there may be more sort of clear rules about what you can and can't express on social media as a, a member of the Academy. Um, but I think there's a lot of determination to make campaigning rules clearer. I just, good luck to them, because that is a really hard task. <laughs> They're going to set up all these rules for Twitter, and then Twitter's going to explode, and then <laughs> they have to go back to the drawing board. I mean, Richard, you're as online as the rest of us. Like, do you have any kind of desire for, for what they would do here? I mean, I, I think it would be nice if there was some kind of way, I don't know what what would be in the Academy's power to do so to level the financial playing field somehow. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I think the thing about to Leslie getting dinged for this campaigning was that this was, or this was free, you know, mm -hmm. they weren't spending a bundle on ads on the sunset strip or whatever, you know, tr more traditional um, campaigning would allow for. And they got in trouble for that, you know, which kind of feels unfair for a small movie to, using the resources in front of them, which happened to be <laughs> a lot of well-connected <laughs> celebrity friends. You know, that feels like, you know, if the Academy doesn't want just like, I mean, it's kind of analogous to our politics, like the most funded campaigns to be the ones that are successful, mm -hmm. um, they'll have to kind of figure that out. But I also think that social media, A, we're dealing with people who are not necessarily age-wise natively online, you know, mm -hmm. so there might be some lack of understanding there partially, um, and also who may just be kind of sniffy about it in general and like because it's not traditional, they're looking down on it. And I think as much as it might seem kind of suspicious that people are copying and pasting the same copy to get Andrew Riceboro nomination, like, is that any more or less underhanded than, you know, honor the man, honor the film, you know? <laughs> Do you think if they hadn't copied and pasted, anyone would have ever noticed? Like, would this have gone completely under the radar? <laughs> I mean, I think there was a strange and noticeable surge of, support for a movie that most people had never heard of, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but yes, it could have seemed a bit more organic, let's say, had people used different language, um, and maybe if it didn't all come out within three days. But they, but that was the window that they had, and they, you know, released the, the Kraken that is Francis Fisher. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and, uh, and it worked, you know? I mean, it ended up kind of blowing back in everyone's face, and, which is too bad. But yeah, I mean, I think obviously the campaigning has gotten insane. I don't want to say that it's all bad because obviously we here at VF, like, we are part of that. We benefit from it as well. Um, but yeah, something to kind of level the playing field and also just have a broader understanding of like the realities of social media and, and that stuff. Because if you start making hard and fast rules, there's always a, but there's a, you know, it's very, if then, well, if we can't do this, then can we do that? And, and it gets really tricky as you yeah. were saying, Rebecca. Yeah. It's just, 
I just don't know how you level the playing field for both financial and influence. You know, it's like, Mm -hmm. of course, the Academy's messaging is like, we want this to be about the films. Uh, But it's like, this is Hollywood. I just, it's hard to sort of put rules on both those categories that will work. I'm so curious to see how they approach it. And I think social media is in some ways the lifeblood of the Oscars continuing to be relevant. You know, A24 can leverage social media like nobody else. That was a huge part of everything, everywhere, all at once is, you know, continued campaign. And I think there had been this idea that A24 didn't spend any traditional money, which isn't really true, but they certainly use social media in a more savvy way than a lot of these other competitors. And for the Academy to lock down social media to an extent that they're kind of afraid to try to do that, then you're going to have like less eyeballs on the Oscars in general, which is what they don't want. That's a good point. Yeah. And I think also with the to Leslie thing, like it was a humbler campaign than some, which were having lavish parties at film festivals months before nominations, you know, all that stuff. But you look at something um, like Till, which, you know, probably budget wise was about the same. It was probably more expensive than to Leslie, but, you know, it was smaller in profile. It didn't have a huge star at the center, although a great performance um, and yet didn't really work for that. I mean, that, that movie didn't get the kind of thing because it wasn't quite as well connected. And I think that obviously has to do a lot with like there are just fewer powerful black people in Hollywood because of yeah. decades of prejudice and um you know, so even though To Leslie was tiny and was doing it sort of grassroots, they they had a leg up on another deserving film. And so is there any way to make this totally fair? I don't know at this point, at least not in the Academy's power. But it's good that they're thinking about it, at least. I hope they come up with the right, you know, course forward. Yeah. I do feel like the Oscar, this new leadership has made some really good decisions. I feel like overall the, the, the choices they made for the Oscars went over really well after quite a few years of turmoil. So I'm hopeful that they'll find something that feels fair. Yeah, it might be vague in the same way that this current social media rules are vague because social media changes so fast and you you set a hard and fast rule and then you have to reverse back. But, um, you know, maybe a little bit more helpful than the vague rules we have now. I mean, the money question comes up with the the rumor that came up last week um, as reported in Puck by Matt Bellany that the Oscars might require a more robust theatrical release in the future to qualify for Best Picture. Um, Rebecca, you want to explain that one a little bit more? Yeah. um, You know, the rumor is that they're considering the idea of expanding the theatrical requirement. Right now, films are required to play theatrically for one week in one of six major markets, L.A., New York, Chicago, um, Miami, Atlanta or the Bay Area. And so this would require them to play around 15 of the top 50 markets in the U.S., so a much, much bigger theatrical play, which obviously would make movie theater owners super happy. Um, And I would assume make distributors a little stressed out, specifically the streamers, because, you know, obviously a lot of them have just been doing that sort of one week requirement um, to qualify. So it's an interesting idea. I mean, from what I've heard, this is very, very early and and has to still obviously be approved by the board and, and a little far away from being real. But um, you know, it's interesting to see that they're thinking about this and it would be such a way to support um, movie theaters, which obviously have, have been feeling the, the struggle. And it's a good time for it, too. You know, Everything Everywhere wins Best Picture off of a really strong theatrical run. I think it made like half a million dollars in theaters after it won Best Picture when it had been, you know, available until a year into its theatrical release. Um, And Top Gun and Avatar obviously in there, too. Like, I think the Oscars and box office relationship is more intuitive than it has been for the last couple of years. It feels like a good timing if they're going to pull something like this off. 
Yeah, I mean, expanding those qualification rules, though, I mean, there are so many films, smaller films, usually a lot of times um, international films that will play a week in L.A. or New York and then come out like with a proper theatrical release months and months later. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so that would kind of screw that whole model up, because if you're playing in 15 or however many, you know, um, cities, that's a full release in in some ways, you know, are you going to take it away and then put it out again in April? Like, you know, that model has been built very carefully over a long time, the sort of platforming kind of thing, usually with a qualification embedded in there. But yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, Netflix kind of bought a theater in New York for this reason. I mean, I know they had other reasons too, but now they have to buy a theater in in Orlando and in San Diego, which like, Hey, if it makes people open movie theaters, I'm all for that. When we've had thousands of movie theaters close across the country in the past two years. I mean, I think as a purist, I'm like, good. These movies should be theatrical films that are considered and more people in more cities should have access to them, you know, when we in New York or L.A. do. Um, But yeah, for like a Sony Pictures Classics or, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, Kino Lorber, these smaller distributors who, you know, will do a a gentle release for Petit Maman in December in New York City and then put that movie up much later. uh, I I wonder how that will really shake up that whole structure that they've built. Franklin Leonard also had a really smart thread that made me think about this in a different way about, you know, if you're a filmmaker, a newcomer or probably a a filmmaker of color and your film gets bought at Sundance or wherever by a a streamer or a, a, I don't know, one of these like Hulu Disney releasers and you're negotiating your release contract, you don't have the power of a Ryan Johnson or someone to be like, I need a theatrical release, you know? Mm-hmm. And and the great thing about the streamers is they have bought and distributed movies that, you know, traditional distributors maybe thought were too risky to do a theatrical release and, and given especially up and coming filmmakers that opportunity. And so now you're, those films would not qualify or you'd have to negotiate this sort of really intense theatrical release just to get a chance. And yeah, I don't know if it makes the system more fair or less so. So it's, it's I don't know. I don't know if that one's going to work or just make a certain group very happy and everyone else really frustrated. It would require a lot of changes. And I would I don't know that these economics are ever going to be publicly available, but I'd love to know how much it costs to run in 15 markets mm. for a theatrical one-week release, however, whatever qualifies, versus spending on FYC ads or all the other things that you would do to boost your your smaller movie. Like, maybe that is, like, those economics just shift. That money exists. It just has to be put somewhere else. But it does make you wonder about, like, the two Leslies of the world. I'm sure two Leslie never played in 15 markets when, in its theatrical release. Um, that money's got to come from somewhere if we want to have the broader range of voices in the Oscar race, which is what the Academy has certainly said that they want. There's also the matter of those smaller movies I mentioned, like do on occasion get to say when they do a proper release in the spring or late winter of the year following their technical release date is like, they can be like named the best movie of the year by all these people and Mm -hmm. given this critics prize and that nomination. And and because they have, they have the time to have amassed those accolades. If they now have to do a, a bigger release before any of that can happen, how does that affect their marketing? I mean, maybe it's bad for them in that way. Yeah. 
Although I'd be interested to hear from listeners, too, because I think this is a source of frustration for people who aren't, you know, don't have access to film festivals or screenings the way that we do often, where you hear about Petite Maman opening somewhere for a week in December and then wait a year (laughs) for it to come out. It's kind of maddening. So, like, maybe this makes it so that by the time the Oscars happen, more people have had a chance to actually see these movies. I imagine that's part of the logic. Yeah, maybe it all just comes back to ratings. <laughs> They're just like, <laughs> if we can figure out a way to ensure that more people have seen these things, uh, then people will watch the broadcast. Yeah. I mean, Rebecca, as you said, this is not an official decision. Uh, it seems like if this does happen at all, it might be a, take a different shape than what we're discussing right now. So I guess this is the time to make your comments known. Like the Academy's on Twitter. <laughs> Go yeah. tweet at them and tell them what you want to see happen because it's a, it's a moving target right now. I feel like we're going to see some other surprise changes this year. I... I... Ooh, you want to place any bets? No, I don't know. But I I just feel like I think they're really focused on on making some changes. So I think the next few months will be very interesting. Just to to kind of repeat ourselves a little bit, I'm encouraged by the idea of focusing on theatrical releases more. You know, I was looking at the box office from this past weekend where 1001, I interviewed Tiana Taylor on the show last week. It's a small movie. It was at, you know, big Sundance winner, but a very small scale thing. You know, they open it, Focus Features open it on 926 screens and it made $1.7 million. Like I think putting faith behind a small movie like that can pay off in a lot of ways. So the, the, Box office is coming back. People are going back to theaters. And I like that the Academy is willing to push even further in that direction. Hey, everybody. I'm entertainment journalist Drew Taylor. And I'm filmmaker Charles Hood. And we host Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast. But right now we're about to launch our first ever universe-expanding miniseries. That's right. Get ready for Light the Fuse presents The Directors. We'll speak to filmmakers who have made iconic Paramount movies and get them to open up in a way that only we can. That's right. Listen to Light the Fuse presents The Directors wherever you get your podcasts. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. This episode of Little Gold Men is brought to you by MUBI, a curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. They have everything from iconic directors to emerging auteurs. There is always something new to discover because with MUBI, each and every film is hand-selected so you can explore incredible movies streaming anytime, anywhere. Right now, they have a film collection for performers we love, and they are highlighting one of this year's Oscar frontrunners, Lily Gladstone. So I am here with David Canfield to talk about how much we love Lily Gladstone, and especially her film that is now on movie, Certain Women. David, fond memories there. Fond memories. What an introduction. None of us knew who she was before that film, um, but it's quite a thing to be in a Kelly Reichardt film with Michelle Williams, Kristen Stewart, and Laura Dern and completely steal it. And uh, now we're talking about it to this day. 
You can try Mubi for free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash LittleGoldMen. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash LittleGoldMen for a whole month of great cinema for free. Mubi.com slash LittleGoldMen. Okay, to talk about further news, and uh, Richard and Rebecca, I'm just going to hold back my envy because we're going to talk about Cannes, where you two are going and I am not. Um, but there's been some actual confirmation of what will be at Cannes in addition to a whole bunch of rumors. Um, Richard, what what are you going to be doing when you sit down to watch Indiana Jones 5 on the Quasit? Well, maybe I'll be in a tuxedo because I'll be at the premiere. Who knows? <laughs> you know, is, Are they going to do a big fancy party for... Um, for the movie um yeah that's a fun one you know they i can likes to have you know a mad max or a top gun maverick or something splashy commercial elvis too last year although that ended up being both of those ended up being awards movies as well um so yeah the indiana jones one is a little surprising just because it's not spielberg directing it you know Mm -hmm. um it's uh james mangold i believe right and um and who is you know himself like he had Ford versus Ferrari a couple of years ago. Like he's no stranger to uh, sort of festivals and, and awards and all that stuff. Um, but yeah, a fifth movie in a series that's sort of interesting. Although Mad Max, I guess, was the fourth. Shrek, one, some some number of Shreks. Shreks one can. and two both played in competition. Katie, <laughs> did they really? Yes. Oh my god. I yes. Really that. Isn't that strange? <laughs> Moulin Rouge, Shrek, the first Shrek, and Mulholland Drive were all at the same can. This feels like a Richard bit that I'm just... <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's that's real. Well, that's no, we're going to make you do can recaps from 20 years ago like we do with the, <laughs> the Oscars. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It is it is fascinating to look at the sort of random movies that have played there. Um, but yeah, the, and the other thing about that, you get you get celebrities on the carpet, which they love, and the photographers love, and the out, the media outlets love, and, and et cetera. So, um, and to that end, you also have uh, Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon, which... A year ago, we thought it was coming out in 2022, and then they said, no, we're holding it till 2023, and kind of with that news was at Cannes. Like, that, that, like it was, we've, we kind of knew about that. Did they actually say that, or did we all just assume it? It's funny how long we have assumed it would be at Cannes. I think there was one piece, either in THR, Variety, or somewhere like that, that said it's likely or possible, and everyone just took that as gospel fact. <laughs> <laughs> and luckily, it's been confirmed. Yeah, it's nice. Um, yeah, I mean, we talked about that a lot in our um, year ahead predictions episode this year and last year. So there's been a lot discussed. But I'm just glad that we'll know soon. Like, is this going to be Lily Gladstone's year? Is Jesse Plemons going to be a best actor, best supporting actor? Like, there's such a big cast. And I read the book, but there's so many different ways you can tell that story. Um, I'm just even though I won't get to see it there, I'm glad well, some of those mysteries will be solved. Do we know how long Killers of the Flower Moon is? Is this the one that's rumored to be? insanely long yes. I thought that was Bo was afraid that uh, we had to, we had to get well, that we heard, I had heard it was four hours it's <laughs> we'll not, get it's to that th- in a minute too it's only three um, but yeah I had seen something that the movie that can wanted them to cut Killers of the Flower Moon or edit it because it was too long and they couldn't slot it in enough like in the schedule and it's like that's not really how can operates it's not like Toronto mm, where they're just right. you know um, they're gonna let I would assume Scorsese premiere his movie as he's made it you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> um and winter sleep which uh was the palm d'Or winner back in 2014 i think uh that was i think two minutes shorter than killers of the flower moon's current reported runtime so right. i don't think that they're gonna cut the movie yeah, Apple announced that and then also um, released a, a still from Napoleon and confirmed that it's coming out uh, in the fall. It didn't come with any festival rumors. I guess it could 
I don't think it'll be at Cannes. That would be weird for them to do both of them at the same time. But it was a nice show of strength from Apple, who kind of, you know, one Best Picture more or less had a year off last year, although they did get the Causeway nomination for Brian Tyree Henry. Um, they got a strong hand this year, and they seem to know it. Yeah. And most importantly, we should mention, we're having a party, right? Are we allowed mm. to say that? I don't know. I mean, yeah, I think I, so. Okay. It's been out there. Unfortunately, uh, if you're listening to this, it doesn't mean you're invited. Uh, that uh, <laughs> we have to. Richard and I hope we're invited. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do a Hunger Games style contest to see who gets in. If Leonardo DiCaprio's in Cannes, mm. presumably he would come to the party, which. Oh, um, well, well, well. That's a big deal, right? Yeah. I'm, I'll be editing one of your party reports at 5 a.m. my time. So um, yeah. everyone envy me and my role in this party. I feel like they're the same day the premiere and oh the God. party. I don't know. This oh. is. Some- that would this be is something we'll have to figure out. Yeah. <laughs> well, last was Uh-oh. was last year COVID affected at Cannes, or was it more le- more or less back to normal, or is this really the first normal normal Cannes? Last year was pretty normal. It was pretty okay. normal, and so much is outside there. I mean, yeah. in the theaters, I remember I was still wearing a mask, as I still do now. But uh, yeah, and so much of the events and parties and stuff are outside that it 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 felt okay. Yeah, no, you don't have to go back to Cannes in July anymore, Richard. That's uh, those days are behind us. Oh, thank God! I, I, don't, I don't know if I could do it, <laughs> humidity-wise. Um, I mentioned Bo's Afraid uh, earlier as the rumored long movie, which is not out yet, but has been kind of poking its head out. It had a big uh, screening what, at the Alamo Draft House in New York over the weekend. Is that where you saw it, Richard, or did you catch it elsewhere? Um, elsewhere, but that screening they did, I think, a couple uh, at Alamos across the country, possibly. And it was an it was on Saturday, April first, so it was billed as a midsummer director's cut with a New York Ari Aster presenting it, and then it was J.K. We're showing you the whole thing of okay. Bo was Afraid because there was going to be a, like an extended trailer for Bo was Afraid and then Midsummer, and instead it was the whole of Bo. That's like an old school Comic Con bait and switch. I like it. It's yeah. like the, yeah. it's A24, they're so smart. That's, you know, because that's all I saw on Twitter was all these people being like, oh, it's an April Fool's joke. And then everyone's talking about it. It's just, it's such a smart marketing move. They just, they really impress me time after time. And it's nice when an April Fool's joke is like beneficial to <laughs> the person yeah. being tricked, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like it's not to their detriment at all. Um, but yeah, I mean, that said, Bo was afraid, you know, I, I it, it's the review embargo is, has not lifted, but social sentiment is out there. So I think I can vaguely say like, Bo was afraid is a very different movie from uh, Midsommar or Hereditary, Astor's previous two films. Um, it moves slightly out of the horror genre. It's more of a fantastical comedy drama Freudian thing um, that, uh, you know, maybe there were some people in that audience who were like, I really just wanted to watch Midsommar. <laughs> but, you know, to see a movie a few weeks before it comes out, like, that's exciting. And so, yeah, people seemed mostly on Twitter to be very uh, effusive about it. Also, like, it really just proves that he's an auteur, you know what I mean? That he has these fans that are like, okay, it's not the movie I thought it was, but it's still Ari Aster, so I yeah. don't care. I will watch this movie, you know? So, and he's so young to, like have that sort of fan base it's pretty amazing mm-hmm. yeah to, to have engendered that after just three movies i mean really yeah. only after two because most people haven't seen Bo yet so yeah it's he's he's definitely like after seeing midsummer i was like that guy is like the next paul thomas anderson or something like and this Bo is afraid does move him more towards in, in that direction um so it's I've interesting heard charlie kaufman's name evoked a few times about yes. afraid. yeah it's very there's a very synecdoche new york quality to it um, also, some Animalisa is in there. Mm-hmm. Some of the one with Jesse Buckley, the title of which I can never properly I'm remember. Of ending things. I'm thinking of ending <laughs> things. Thank you. Um, yeah, their influences are definitely there, but it also, at the same time, feels like a singular thing from a new, a new up and coming director. 
Richard, do you see an awards path for this movie? Yeah, I mean, I think that that Joaquin Phoenix is certainly doing a lot in it. It's a very, you know, it's a, it's a big performance in some ways and sort of restrained in others. But um, yeah, I mean, it's a really weird movie. So I, I'd be curious to see how they marketed it mm-hmm. um, in, in the awards uh, sense. I mean, I know Everything Everywhere was weird too, but that movie has a, a sentiment to it, an uplift to it by the end that Bo, um, I think, is a is a darker affair. We don't um, really go to Ari Aster for uplift, at least not at this point <laughs> in his career. Not yet, no. Um, but uh, the, for me, the, the really interesting narrative could be Patti Lapone, who plays um, <gasps> wow. Bo's mother in the film. And uh, when she's on screen, she reminds you why she's Patti fucking Lapone. <laughs> <laughs> and also reminds you that, like, man, just, she's gotten very few film roles. She's been on t- she was on TV, you know, and Life Goes On years ago and pops up and things here and there. But this is like a, a meaty, exciting theatrical role for her in a in a you know major director's film, and that's pretty exciting. Oh man, that would be such a fun Oscar campaign. Holy yeah. moly. I, w- I would look out for her at New York Film Critics Circle, but it's what I'll say. <laughs> Based on the tweets I saw. You're gonna be yeah. whipping votes for her in the in the cloakroom. <laughs> I mean, between that and then the Napoleon announcement and then the Joker set photos, uh, yeah. uh, Joaquin Phoenix is just all over the place right now. It's, you know, every time he's on an awards campaign, he seems so completely miserable. And you're like, will he ever come back again? And then he keeps making fascinating movies. So um, welcome back, Joaquin. You got to do it all over again. Despite the family connections, obviously, to his brother River, like Joaquin Phoenix is a very unlikely kind of movie star. Yeah. Uh, and yet he he does it because he had, I mean, kind of similar to Ari Aster, like there are people who are like, I'm on board for any Joaquin Phoenix movie. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not, not necessarily one of those people, but like he, he definitely has an ardent fan base that can put him in something like this and something like Joker and people are equally happy. I am always interested in what he's going to do. Like, even when, like, it's something like Joker, which is not entirely my speed. Like, he has never been boring, really, that I can think of. Um, I don't know. I've never saw some of those, like, early 2000s post-Gladiator movies. So maybe maybe somewhere in there. But these days, he's really um, captivating. Okay, one more news thing uh, before we jump into some movies that are coming out now. Um, Barbie posters. There's so many of them. I picked a favorite which is Midge, Emerald Fennel, um, because she's pregnant for some reason, and I don't know why, and I'm intrigued. Um, who, wants to else, who else wants to pick a favorite Barbie poster and or uh, explain how hyped we are for Barbie at this point? I mean, it was fun to see that Dua Lipa has, mm-hmm. I think, a couple new songs that are going to be in the film. Is she a mermaid? Is she she's mermaid a mermaid. One? Yeah. Of course. Um, and the Hari Neff one was cool. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It just makes you really realize this cast, like how interesting it is, and... And uh, I don't know. I can't remember the last time that a movie had this much like social media thirst every time mm. something they release the smallest thing like pre-release pre-release thirst. Yes. Yeah. And like in our, you know, there's the superhero movie version, you know, like I'm sure Avengers Endgame had it. But like for our corner, you know, not just oscar but like people who are a little burned out on franchises and in spectacle movies to be this hype for Barbie feel special. I do wonder, and I'm not an expert in any of these things, but like the movie's out in July, it's early April, and this campaign has already been going for months at this point. Like the teaser that's the 2001 ripoff, or I mean, yeah. homage, uh, <laughs> it's not a ripoff, they know what they're doing, um, yeah. but yeah. <laughs> um, has been playing in theaters for months. I wonder if they might be risking fatigue before mm-hmm. the movie even comes out. Um, and also, like, they're setting up a lot of expectations. And can any movie possibly meet that? There was a screening of it where I saw some tweets about it. 
mm. like a month ago, maybe, where people were like really effusive about it. But again, can we trust those early views? I don't know. But yeah. And that movie was also rumored at one point to maybe be at Cannes. I don't think that's going to happen. But yeah. Who knows? Is Oppenheimer still on the Cannes rumor? It seems unlikely to for that and Indiana Jones to both be there. But yeah, I think now that Jones has been announced and Flower Moon, I, I think, yeah, it seems unlikely there'd be another big film out of competition. Yeah. I mean, the the Oppenheimer-Barbie, like, duo, I just, I'm thrilled by it. I, I'm <laughs> so glad they haven't moved release dates. I'm so glad that that is yeah. the weekend we get to anticipate. Um, I don't know if I will get to see them back to back, but I'm just, like, operating as if I will. Um, I hope Oppenheimer has its own string of character posters after this. I mean, they just keep volleying back and forth all summer. <laughs> and Dua Lipa has recorded new songs for Oppenheimer. <laughs> oh, yeah, well. of course. Yeah, she plays yeah. the bomb. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oppenheimer, right? Yeah. Okay, to talk about uh, movies in theaters right now, I mentioned 1001, um, and you can listen to the Tiana Taylor interview from last week if you happen to see that. Um, but uh, there's some uh, even larger releases coming this week. Super Mario's on the horizon. I assume it will make a scrillion dollars because there's been nothing for kids for months. Um, but Richard, you and I have both seen Air, which is out, I think now, I think it's a Wednesday release. So as you hear this, it is in theaters. Coming right at the end of March Madness, uh, it's a basketball movie and a basketball movie that you and I both liked, which is not, you know, we're not necessarily the target audience here. It's a shoe movie, Katie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh we're obviously the target audience for shoe movies. <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, Affleck, um, in that great Hollywood Reporter interview that our former colleague uh, Rebecca Keegan did, um, he said, look, I went to Michael Jordan. I told him I'm not making a movie about you, but I'm not going to make the movie I want to make unless I have your blessing. And he was given that blessing. And so the movie is not about Michael Jordan. He's He appears in it very briefly. Um, and you kind of just see him from behind. Um, it's about his parents, played by Viola Davis and her real-life husband, Julius Tennant, um, and about these shoe guys. Matt Damon plays a marketing executive who specializes in scouting basketball talent. Ben Affleck is Phil Knight, the I guess now former CEO of Nike. Um, so it's a process movie. It's a business movie. And I found it entertaining. I don't know if it moved me because it was, again, just about sneakers and the making of money. But it's well done. It's kind of shaggy and low, you know, low to the ground. And um, I think that's a good sweet spot for Affleck and Damon to be in as they launch um, this their artist equity uh, production company. It surprised me how much it was about the themes of artist equity, which I knew about from reading that Rebecca Keegan article, where basically they started a production company where, uh, you know, the top cast and the cinematographer and various other crew member have equity stake in the movie, right? Like it's a kind of a everyone shares alike deal. I think so. I think Affleck said that depending on how the movie does in theaters, like the cinematographer will be the highest paid cinematographer uh, of the year or something like that. There was some pithy quote about yeah. that. And it's an, it's an interesting new model. And then that becomes part of the plot of the movie. And, you know, I guess spoilers for history, but part of it is that Michael Jordan got a stake in the sales of Air Jordans, um, which it, there's one of the title cards at the end reveals. Do you remember how much passive income he makes from Air Jordans every year, Richard? Do you remember this number? I remember it's more than I make in a year. <laughs> it's it's four hundred million dollars a oh year. My God. So actually, it's a, just a little bit less. I know, I know. Yeah. You're, you'll yeah. get there one yeah. of these days, Richard. Um, it's slightly mind-boggling, and you know it, that's a result of the negotiation of his mother, played by Viola Davis. Um, and Ben Affleck again in that amazing piece, which everyone should read. Um, talked about how Michael Jordan basically said, "I want Viola Davis to play my mom," and he was like, "No, like it's, she's not going to show up for this role." And then I guess they rewrote the script to make her a bigger part, and she's so good in it in a way that yeah. I you know she's great in everything but like the role of Michael Jordan's mom you can't really prepare yourself for how significant it becomes in the story she's really good in it 
Um, it's a slightly different tone and tempo than she, we've seen her in. You know, the movie's lighter. She tends to do a lot of heavier fare. So mm-hmm. that's kind of fun. I mean, the stakes are serious for her and her family, the character. But, you know, it's not quite as, it's not big monologues and whatnot. And also, you know, between this and um, in the upcoming uh, Nicole Hollow Center film where David Cross and Amber Tamblyn play a married couple, and here Viola Davis and Julius Tennant are, I'm like, I think I really like right now actual real life couples playing couples in movies it's just there's there's such an easy obvious uh chemistry you know he's wonderful in it too and like in in a much more like less complex character as presented on screen but uh you're he really lights up the screen when he's there yeah yeah and uh, you know everyone's good you know um matthew i think mayor is how you say his last name he's like a real staple of the new york theater scene he plays the guy who designs the air jordan um, he's really good. Chris Messina is sort of a slimy agent is good. He's really funny. He has he gets the best laughs, I yeah. think. Yeah, it's just like it's just a well populated movie. And, you know, I think I was supposed to maybe feel a bit more inspired or something at the end than I did. But um, it's very entertaining. And maybe that's the best we can hope for in early April. It definitely got me. And it in it's the way and I don't want to I think the impact of it is better if you don't know too much about it. But the way that it uses footage of real Michael Jordan um, and not just in the like that's the title card at the end where it tells you where everyone turned out. It says Michael Jordan became the greatest basketball player of all time. You're like, oh, I wouldn't have figured that out from watching this movie. <laughs> Today but, we call them computers. <laughs> Today we call them Air Jordans. Um, it goes it goes beyond that and the way that it it uses performances in the movie and then footage of Michael Jordan and where his life went after this moment it really got me. Um, and Jason Bateman's got a great monologue about like both shoes being manufactured in Korea and taking his daughter to the park on Sundays that, like, I didn't figure out how it all fit together, but it still got to me. Um, I think even if you're, like, lightly sports-inclined, um, yeah. this movie will work for you. I would really recommend it to just about anybody. I got teary at the nice music while they played footage of Michael Jordan. Because yeah. it was just like, wow, like, this is the beginning of this, like, phenomenal thing that, ha- yeah. you know, this person did over the years. And and because he's a, he's a complicated figure, you know? Like, his sports legacy is kind of un... un- rivaled but you know he's had a complicated life and it doesn't shy away from that either um and it but it has a very light touch because it's not a movie about him as ben affleck said um so yeah that really impressed me i'm just happy to see ben affleck back like have him and j-lo make a movie next it sounds like what you're asking for richard Ooh, yeah another one (laughs) and maybe not just some junky romantic comedy like let's go let's learn the lessons of hustlers and Mm -hmm. and then put j-lo in something worthy of her abilities and she and affleck can vibe together hopefully it wouldn't destroy the relationship like the last one did (laughs) um although i don't think g lee is to blame for their breakup all those years ago but nor is jersey girl but um yeah he's he's a good solid old-fashioned kind of Hollywood director. And um, he's not trying to do a ton of stuff and, you know, be fancy with the camera or anything like that. I mean, the, the movie looks nice, but yeah, it's just very sturdy and workmanlike, which I guess fits the, the, the tone of the movie. Totally. Yeah, Rebecca, you kind of mentioned it as a as insurance in their Oscar predictions episode. And I don't, it's hard to see the path for how it hangs in there, but I wouldn't mind it. You know, I think if it, it opens now, it goes quiet for a while. And then in the fall, we start being like, you know, what was great was air. Um, I can absolutely see that happening. Yeah, I was going to ask you what you thought about its uh, potential for that. But, you know, I think a lot of that is also it's um, an Amazon release. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they haven't had the easiest path with Oscars yet. So... Um, that's a little bit of an additional challenge for it. But uh, you guys have sold me on it. I'm actually seeing it tonight. So uh, now my expectations are super high. Thanks a oh, lot. No. <laughs> Katie, we shouldn't have released those character posters and sent them <laughs> only to Rebecca. For four different designs of the shoe, each yeah. got their own poster. 
Okay, to close things out, let's return to television. Um, the new shows of the spring keep premiering as, uh, you know, the Emmy eligibility window looms. Um, and Beef premieres this week. We mentioned it briefly last week, I think, but uh, reviews are now out. Um, I've seen most of the season, but not all of it. And um, Rebecca, I know that you you were really the first person to kind of tell me to look out for this one. So now that you can talk more freely about it, um, what should people look for in Beef? Yeah, I loved Beef. Um, we did a first look, so I saw it pretty early. I, and then I had no one to talk to about it. <laughs> and um, it is definitely one of those shows that I feel like is going to result in a lot of conversation. It just It's surprising at every turn. And I think the lead performances from both Ali Wong and Stephen Yun are just so strong and just so complicated because these characters do bad things. And you still root for them a lot of the time. And um, it's really sort of messy and but so beautifully done I mean it goes goes to some places you will not expect but I think that's what I loved about it so much is it's just really really surprising they keep doing bad things which is interesting you know there's there's not like an arc where it's like and then by episode six they've seen the error of their ways and it's about them trying to be better no Mm. not really Mm -hmm. (laughs) like it, it it stays pretty dark um in a way that's kind of thrilling um and both actors really seem to be very invigorated by that experience you know um it's really interesting material really interesting direction um and it's always the the supporting cast is great a lot of people i don't think i've seen in things before and it's just a reminder of like when you start to make things about all kinds of people lo and behold all these amazing actors emerge who like have been vastly underemployed you know in the industry for years um who can who are capable of great things and i think this show is is a really you know mighty testament to that fact yeah, it's interesting. When I was doing the first look, they said Stephen Young was attached very early, even before there were scripts. But they had debated the sort of person that he gets in this road rage incident um, with to be more of like a Stanley Tucci sort of character. But I think it just adds mm. so much, um, so much more, I don't know, depth to the story, having it be Ali Wong and, and sort of where her storyline goes. So it's interesting to see the way it evolved because it is amazing to see this all Asian cast, but that's not, it's not an identity show. It doesn't really, t- there's a couple jokes about it, but it, but there are parts of their cultural story, you know, like a Korean church that just feel, just feel like such a natural part of the story. So it, I think it's a really, really special show and I am excited for people to discuss it once it comes out. Uh, yeah, Rebecca, you've also been talking to Young Mazzino, who plays um, mm-hmm. Stephen Young's character's brother, who I think really uh, exemplifies that breakout quality you're talking about, Richard. Oh, you mean when he gets shirtless? <laughs> um, yeah, no, he's he's terrific, you know, and um, it's really exciting. And I think that, you know, it's it's something akin in a way to watching Fire Island or Bros, where it's like internal debate and differences of identity within a sort of group, you know, and and we don't get to see that enough. Usually there's sort of a token minority character or a token queer character or whatever. And in, in Beef, it's like, it's just, it's all so in world and, and, you know, these are very different people who might from a distance be considered, oh, they're Asian, they're the same. And it's like, no, there's a vast complexity of experience and economic reality and all kinds of other things that the show really delves into with a naturalness because it's, you know, it's made by people who understand what they're talking about. Um, I also add that Ashley Park is not a breakout for, for people who watch Emily in Paris, but I, I was not one of those people. So it's kind of the first time I've seen her in anything and she's, uh, wonderful. And, mm-hmm. um, 
Rebecca, you're working on something for the future, kind of talking about her character as a level of rich, different from the other many levels of rich in this show. Um, and I love that. I love the variety and, and kind of what she brings to that and that character specifically. I feel like we're going to have a cool Ashley Park year because I saw um, Joyride, which is at South yeah. by that she's also in. And she's doing a lot of different stuff because I think she's a little limited in what she gets to do in Emily in Paris. So I think it's, it's going to be we're going to hear a lot from her soon, I think. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think she makes any jokes about shopping, which is all she does in Emily in Paris, I feel like. <laughs> um, okay, to circle back to last week's kind of broader Emmy season conversation, which, again, we knew we weren't going to get to everything because it's impossible to because there's so many shows. But I did want to mention two particular shows that I do think will be relevant this season. And, um, Rebecca, you, I think, since we recorded that, caught up on all of Shrinking. Um, <laughs> the, the big Apple show from Bill Lawrence, it's kind of the, like... Ted Lasso still on, but it's sort of the Ted Lasso of this year because it's new and it's got that similar kind of humor. And I'm still catching up to it, but uh, it sounds like you really enjoyed it. I did enjoy it. I watched it super fast over like two days, but um, but I had off. I was not doing the string work hours. But um, yeah, it, it has that humor that, that some of the humor that you kind of feel with Ted Lasso, that sort of bright, shiny humor but uh i i really enjoyed jason siegel in it i i think he he you know he plays this dad who's um he's still sort of struggling with the grief of the loss of his wife and he's also a a shrink and works for harrison ford's company he was also a shrink and they have a nice little uh chemistry between the two of them that i really enjoyed and it you know it's 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 a well done show that's relatively i think simple like it's not as we were just talking about beef, it's not like full of shocking twists and turns. But, um, you know, I thought it was a really pleasant watch. And I, I, I could see it definitely being in the conversation, especially for things like writing and and maybe performance. So I am I definitely would say tune in if you just want a sort of light, enjoyable show. Yeah. I mean, speaking of people with interesting years, Harrison Ford having that and then Indiana Jones 5. Like, I don't know what that means Emmy wise, but it's in, in, in 1923. God, he's absolutely he's everywhere. everywhere. Yeah. Um, and then we had someone else write in that we did not mention the marvelous Mrs. Maisel at all, which is which is kind of oversight on our part. It's been such an awards juggernaut. Although I looked up that for its fourth season, it got a ton of nominations and won nothing, which honestly kind of surprised me. It's got such good crafts like you'd think it'd get in somewhere. Um, but I watched a few episodes of the new season, which is premiering on April 14th. So uh, very shortly. And I do think it's interesting. It's its final season. It kind of knows that it's its final season and is going into it kind of trying to type some loose ends, do some things that are new. So I think the eternal question in the Emmys is how much voters care about things being fresh and how much they kind of get tired of something and want to move on to the new thing. Because for so long, the Emmys notoriously didn't do that and give the same award to Frasier for eight years in a row. Um, but I think as a kind of swan song, um, you know, this is going to end final season. Barry is, Ted Lasso, we think is, um, it'll be interesting to see how much people want to come back around and throw awards at something one last time. It is crazy how many shows are ending or I know. supposedly ending this, this semi-season. I don't know what their voters are going to do with that. It would be nice if Ted Lasso would tell us one way or another so we can stop having to, <laughs> having to hedge our pets around it. <laughs> Um, and the screeners for Barry uh, have gone out, so we will, um, you know, be able to start giving a read on that fairly soon. Um, you know, it's inside baseball, but for some shows, you kind of get a look at them ahead of the season, and some other ones that may be currently airing, um, they're being very stingy with uh, getting us access to it. So for us to get a read on the season as a whole uh, is continues to be difficult because there's so much we can't see. That does it for today's show. We'll be back next week. Find us in the meantime at VanityFair.com, on Twitter and Instagram at VF Awards Insider, and on our own. I am at Katie Rich and Richard. Brian Laws. And Rebecca. Rebecca M. Ford. 
Our editor and producer is Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best review of your Passover Seder goes to Rebecca Ford. Yeah, I loved beef 